everybody needs to be mentored. And if you don't think you need to be mentored, then I'm telling you, you need to get out of the army. Mentorship is not, hey, here's how we're going to make your colonel or a general. Mentorship is helping you grow to become better. Mentorship is everything. Fellow leaders, and welcome to the Military Leader Podcast, where you can find conversations with today's most successful leaders. I am Andrew Stedman. I want to thank you for plugging into the episode today and making the military leader a part of your professional development journey. You can find this episode and lots of other leader development content at themilitaryleader.com. And when you get to the website, connect on social media, on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn, and then be sure to subscribe by email. You will get notified every time a new blog post or a new podcast comes out. Before we get to today's conversation with Brigadier General Marty Schweitzer, I want to share a story about the impact that he had on me many years ago. Back in 2001, I was a platoon leader in the 82nd Airborne Division, showed up there after the infantry officer basic course and ranger school, and was lucky to walk right into a platoon leader position. One of the first training opportunities we had was a situational training exercise for the platoon. The battalion had set up a five-kilometer lane with soldiers playing the role of enemy throughout the lane, and our task was to conduct a movement to contact to destroy that enemy and then get to the end so we can move on to the next mission. Now, this was a big deal. It was an evaluation opportunity, and would uh, my performance there would set the course for my time in the unit and then really in the army because if you screw up something like that early it'll stick with you for a little while so the pressure was on and as my platoon deployed into the wood line and we established security i took a knee to get my map out and and check in and make sure we were on track and then to give the next set of instructions and as i was doing that i felt somebody over my uh, over over my shoulder and so i turned my head to see that uh, General Schweitzer, then he was a battalion commander, a lieutenant colonel, was standing there watching what I was doing. This is a big moment for me. You know, I fully expected him to to levy a little bit of pressure and criticism and ask what the heck I was, you know, still doing there and then why hadn't I started. And uh, and so, but instead, he knelt down next to me and he and he put his hand on my shoulder and he looked me in the eye and he said, The energy comes from you. The energy comes from you. And then he said, Now go get after it. And the lessons of that statement sank in over the following you know, weeks, months, and years, even today as I think about it. Uh, there were several things that he was telling me. First is that I was in charge, that I was responsible for everything that platoon did or failed to do. And there should be no doubt in anybody's mind who was leading the patrol. And then you know, additionally, he was telling me that leaders set the tone, that how I respond to the situations that I was about to encounter would set the tone for how the rest of the, of the platoon uh, reacted. And if I was hurried and frenzied and, and stressed out, then they would be too. Uh, but if I was calm and steady and gave them clear instructions, then that would infuse emotional stability into the formation, you know, which was a, an important lesson for a, a new platoon leader to hear right before starting an evaluation lane. And then finally, I think he was saying something about organizational momentum. You know, over the course of the next several days, we were going to be tested uh, going through multiple lanes like this. And he was telling me that throughout those long exercises with multiple challenging engagements, and as the fatigue rose in the platoon, he was reminding me that 
the energy comes from the leaders, the inspiration, the motivation to keep going, the drive, the discipline, the passion comes from the leaders and it's incumbent upon the leader uh, to inject that into the formation whenever they need it. So lots of, you know, really good lessons there with just a few words, the energy comes from you. And that was just the first of many, many lessons that General Schweitzer would impart on me and the other leaders that were there in the battalion at the time. You know, he took us to our first combat deployment in 2002 to Afghanistan and really set the tone for what combat leadership should look like, continue to get after the enemy at every opportunity. And again, that set the tone for the rest of our careers. And he's continued to be a mentor for me and for many others who were with him. You know, never hesitating to pick up the phone to talk about, you know, something that we were challenged with or an opportunity or an assignment that we were facing and giving us candid advice about whether or not we should take that opportunity. And at one in particular, I called him up and asked him if I uh, should take an assignment that was there in, in front of me. And it looked like a pretty cool assignment. And he emphatically said, nope, you know, go in a different direction. And that was looking back, that was the clear right choice. He, he never hesitated to offer his advice and experience. Uh, and it's really paid off over the years. So I'm indebted to him. I'll also say this about General Schweitzer. More than anybody else in my career, the lessons that he imparted have continued to resonate throughout my time as a leader and my service in the Army, and I've continued to make an impact. It's it's funny how I'll, I'll catch myself teaching the same principles, using the same words. I mean, I've taught this energy comes from you lesson several times uh, and talked about it. Um, and, and he planted that seed. He planted that lesson 17 years ago. And so it's a testament to his passion for developing leaders and his willingness to grow the force. But it's also amazing how a leadership principle or a lesson will find its way through the years and through the generations because leaders continue to teach it. So when you have the opportunity to coach somebody on your team and, and, and give them a piece of advice or, or, or teach them, don't hesitate take that opportunity because it'll pay off later. Uh, it'll, it'll continue to survive and you're not just helping that person, you're helping many others down the line. So it's a word of encouragement and motivation uh, for leaders to keep going, keep teaching, keep growing the force. All right, let's get on to the conversation with Brigadier General Marty Schweitzer. I didn't even talk about his deployment history and his service history. He's deployed more times than anybody I know to more theaters from Desert Storm on through uh, today to Iraq and Afghanistan multiple times. He commanded, as I mentioned, a 3rd Battalion, 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment in Afghanistan in 2002, and then 4th Brigade, 82nd Airborne Division in 2006 and 7 in their deployment to Afghanistan. Uh, he served as a Deputy Commanding General for the 82nd and then uh, also worked in one of the hardest jobs that I've heard that's out there, the deputy director for regional operations in the joint staff, uh, basically the battle captain for the world. Um, really incredibly hard job, and, uh, but he's, he's done it all. He's got a ton of experience. Now the CEO and president of Network Designs uh, in McLean, Virginia. Um, and he talks a little bit about that in this interview. So um, uh, he's, a, he's a great leader, a, a true mentor of mine, uh, and someone I've leaned on throughout my career. I am honored to have him on the podcast, and we really just hit the tip of the iceberg when it comes to conversations and topics we could have here to share with you. Uh, but I am glad to do it. And so here is my interview with Breeder General Marty Schweitzer. Sir, thank you so much for taking the time to share your experiences and leadership lessons with us today. My pleasure. I'm fired up to do this. 
All right, sir. So let me take you back to 2001, if you don't mind. Uh, so you took command of 3rd Battalion, 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment uh, in the summer of 2001. You know, you had 650 paratroopers ready to deploy anywhere in the world, fight and win. Uh, of course, no deployment was on the horizon at that point, but you know, I want to take you back to September 11th. I'm curious what it was like as a battalion commander in the 82nd Airborne Division on September 11th when you saw the planes hit the tower and realized that we were about to go into an era of conflict. Yeah, I mean, it uh, it certainly accelerated everything that, you know, a battalion commander or brigade commander is thinking about. You know, you've got these two-year cycles, two-year plans where you're trying to, you know, create a, a, a more capable formation so you can turn over the next guy in better shape that you got. And that was kind of the mindset that I think has existed, you know, for for many folks. Uh, you know, make sure your formation's wartime ready and turn it over in a better condition than you got it. And uh, when that happened, you know, I just started cycling through where exactly am I at in this whole process? Are we better than where we were when I got it? Uh, and so there were a whole lot of questions because this was just months after taking command that 9-11 uh, went, went down. So that's really what went through my mind is where are we at? What do we need to do to get to uh, to increase our war time efficiency and effectiveness, uh, and you know what, what do we need to to close the gap on? And because I I had suspected that you know ele elements of the 82nd would be deploying sooner than later, and that did come through. I didn't you know no one could know if it's your battalion or your brigade getting deployed, but in our sure. case it was. Yes, sir. Did you did you identify any gaps that were immediately apparent that that you accelerated uh you know after that happened yeah the um look i and you know this personally but i spent a lot of time uh focusing on my training audience which was platoon leaders and platoon sergeants uh and what i found the biggest gap at our platoon level was the uh understanding of the impact of and effects of ordnance and direct and indirect fire munitions that our soldiers were employing and then how to uh, optimize or maximize those effects so you can build your maneuver around those effects. You know, we do that routinely for the big bullets, for the artillery bullets, but we rarely do it for our direct fire weapon systems. And so in my estimation, after the first three months, uh, it became very apparent to me that we were ignorant as a formation with our ability to uh, properly employ uh, our weapon systems. That doesn't mean we weren't accurate with them. We were very accurate, but I, I was I was stunned to find out the lack of knowledge of the uh, you know what the, the effects of the weapons. You know, so what's the ricochet? What's the um, uh, minimum safe distances? What's the risk estimate distances for the artillery? What's the RED and MSDs for uh, our aviation assets? Uh, correction, their munition systems that they deploy. And being able to integrate that and being able to understand those effects, you can then really truly build maneuver. And so I, I knew that was a gap. So from 9-11 on, that became almost my singular focus so we could build maneuver that, that optimized the effects of the munitions we were employing. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Well, that had a foundational effect on on all of us then. I mean, it, and it still does today because I'm teaching those same lessons uh, today in the proper uh, employment. Um, it, you know, and one thing I noticed back then was that 
you set the risk parameters uh, for us and, and told us exactly how close was safe to fire uh, against maneuvering, you know, friendly troops, uh, in order to not put them in a um, in, in an unacceptable risk, and and that framed it. As a new lieutenant, I can tell you, it framed my, the risk profile and it framed the the combat and the training experience for me uh, pretty clearly. Uh, and I think yeah, there's a, a regulation lesson. that's called three eighty five sixty three, and it's the only that I'm aware of. Army and Marine Corps regulation. Uh, and it's, and it's, you know, it's called, I think it's about training and training ranges. And so immediately people discount it, which is, which is dumb. It's an incredible regulation. And what it does is the army Marines through decades of training and analysis have identified what the distances are in the, uh, percent of incapacitation is for every single munition that you could be employing, uh, in combat and if you apply that, you're going to find out that it actually works. And I remember when we first started doing this, my first sergeants were the biggest uh, cynics of, of, of this regulation until we, we did a couple test things. And the test things that we did is I used a white butcher board paper and I put them at all these distances uh, to show the ricochet effect of the munitions. And they all thought, well, that's too far until we did the test on them and they saw that when they were determined the distances they could get to we then back up we put the white butcher board paper down there we'd fire the weapon system then we'd look at the effect and it was stunning to them to find out that all their instincts that they've been applying were not accurate and it's no fault to them it's very few people very few formations really build their training and combat employment around that regulation uh, and it is it's money. It's accurate. It's decades of analysis by the Army and Marines to determine the actual effects of the munitions that you're going to be employing. And if you really understand that, you can truly maneuver. If you don't understand that, you're what we call gambling. And I'm not a big gambler. I have no problems with risk and mitigation. Uh, but gambling and risk mitigation are two completely different things. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Well, you'll be heartened to know, at least in my experience out here, that DAPM 3563 is 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 a lot more uh, it's a lot more evident. People are referencing it a lot more, and and I think that the direct fire lessons uh, have really taken hold over the last uh, ten or fifteen years. Of, of course, I mean, I think you've seen that on your side as well as we've you know experienced uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But I think at the junior level, I think it's a lot more accepted now and employed. Um, but who who exposed you to that, sir? Um, were you, were yeah, you a young so officer? It, no, you know, I was a major when I first got exposed to it. I've been using the concepts of it, but it, I was, uh, so I was assigned to the uh, Airborne Brigade in Italy. And our new brigade commander at the time, then Colonel Frank Curry, now Lieutenant General Retired Frank Curry, uh, joined us as we were doing training at Grafenberg. And after the first 30 minutes, he saw our training and stopped all the training and called everybody in. And it was a little humbling. And, you know, our battalion commander included, we were all a little humbled, you know, because we're kind of being told you don't know how you're training. And, you know, we, we kind of got a little defensive until he walked us through what he wanted to teach us. And then he did a tactical exercise with our troops, just the leaders. And at the end of that, too, it was clear to us how ignorant we were and the fact that we had been gambling versus risk mitigation. 
and we reconstructed all of our training in about a 48-hour period. And I have to tell you, that remaining two and a half, three weeks of training that we did at Graffenberg was some of the best training I participated in uh, as a trainer and resource manager uh, in my entire career uh, because of the coaching and, and leadership of Frank Curry. Uh, taking 385-63, making it digestible, uh, and then giving us the concepts that we needed to use moving forward. Just simply yes, incredible. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by this from the influence and from the leadership perspective. So, you know, this occurred when, you know, I guess, 95, 6, 7, right, right around that yeah, time, was, perhaps. So this was 97 when I went through this, 97. Uh, and then 97, 98. Uh, and well, really 97, 98, 99, because that's how Swing Tony lived. So we had the privilege to be under him for every training event, every training uh Prep, you know, preparation where you, where you build the range, but you demonstrate it using the principles out of DA Pan 3 to 563. And it's just simply phenomenal. Yes, sir. I, I, it's just amazing how. So he taught that lesson to you, which had a formidable impression. And then you turned around and taught it to the lieutenants and, uh, and young sergeants you know, there in the 82nd while you were in battalion command. Did, when you're when you're leading a formation and you're teaching those lessons is that a conscious decision to say i'm going to put these lessons into the formation so that it carries on through the army in their in later years is that something that's deliberate yeah so that's a great question drew uh so let me just back it up so after my first month in command you know we were put on block leave you know it's kind of amazing how that works there's nothing to do with it with uh, the leadership time so i taken command in june of uh, 2001 in July, uh, I was sitting on the front porch in my house at Fort Bragg, and the, and the chief of staff of the division ran by. Uh, he says, wait, sir, what are you doing off? Sir, I'm on leave. That's awesome. Then he came over to me, and he said, okay, so you've been in command for 30 days. What are the three things you're going to leave your formation with that makes it better from when you got it? And no one had ever asked me that question before. He said, look, you're going to identify a lot of weaknesses and a lot of strengths, and that's fine. But what are the two, three, or four things that you're going to do with that formation? Uh, and so he goes, don't answer this now, but you need to figure this out in the next couple of weeks. And so what I did was I sat down with my senior non-commissioned officers who had been in the unit forever. And I got feedback from them on what they thought our strengths and weaknesses are and what they would want me to leave the unit with. Uh, and so they gave me a handful of guidance uh, and I limited, I, I added one and I kept two and I, I put the other ones that we'd work on, but it wasn't gonna be my singular focus. So I had three singular focuses uh, that, I, that I wanted to do um, with the unit. And the first was develop a leader development program that was completely linked in and focused on our medal, uh, and it was all built around the platoon leaders and platoon sergeants, and everybody else was a training aid, from squad leaders to and team sergeants to captains and field grades. Everybody was a training aid to help me inculcate these three concepts into uh, the platoon leaders and platoon sergeants. So the first was a leader development program that was focused at the platoon level. Uh, and that was built around uh, ensuring that the platoon leaders and platoon sergeants were the subject matter ex experts 
because at the end of the day, they're going to be out there alone uh, at the end of the sphere making the decisions of the employment of ordinance and making the enemy go away. So that was number one. Number two was rehearsals, because uh, of the other weaknesses that I weakness that I identified within the formation is we were terrible at rehearsals. Rehearsals used to be a series of backbreaks or lieutenants and sergeants and captains talking on the terrain board, and you could lose the will to live if you could call that a rehearsal. And so what I what I did was, and again another tool that was given to me, I didn't create this, uh, is everything was going to be a demonstration. Yeah, the platoon leaders, platoon sergeants, the, the especially platoon leaders, platoon sergeants, the weapon squad leaders, the, all the, the, the folks that had unique uh, responsibilities would demonstrate what they were doing as part of their tactical rehearsal and preparation. Um, and so that was number two. And then the number three was from the team leader level on up. Uh, because those of us who are familiar with the light of the true world know this, but maybe those who aren't don't. The team leader is the he's the ultimate fighting force, and everybody does what the team leader does. So from the team leader on up, I wanted them to reflexively know 385-63. No, not refer to it, not have to pause before you know they employed ordinance, but to know it. And so those three things are what. I focused on from the beginning uh, when I took command. It's just when I when I took command, but after general, after the chief asked me the question. But then after 9/11, I accelerated those three things, and that's all three Panther did for the next you know six seven months as we were getting ready to go to combat. There was nothing else. It was leader development, focused at the platoon sergeant level. It was working and refining our rehearsals. Uh, and it was making 385-63 a reflexive competency from the team leader level and above. And I didn't let anything else interfere with those three things. Sometimes that, uh, maybe there was some risk associated with that, but I, I personally have convinced that if we do those three things well, that we're going to be pretty successful uh, when real bullets start flying. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So come the summer of 2002, then you, know, you get the opportunity to deploy to Afghanistan and you had deployed, uh, you know, many times before, as you had, you had mentioned to us and, uh, you know, been in combat situations, you know, but as in the enemy and that, that summer, and I describe it as kind of on their heels, you know, the Anaconda had just happened. The 101st had taken it to them pretty good. And so I kind of felt like we were running around trying to root out targets and trying to develop targets from a pretty, uh, not a, not a quiet environment, but an undeveloped environment. And, uh, but, but that th there was an edge of, uh, I guess, audaciousness and boldness, um, in the battalion's actions. Is that something that started with you in seeking out the enemy and go and find them? No, I think it's, uh, they got, they were truly comp just like I became confident in my ability to synchronize the ordinance. Now that I understood it, I think our sergeants, truly understood the effects of their weapon systems, not just the when you hit the target, but when you don't. And how do you maximize maneuver? And when you really figure that out, that creates a degree of confidence that you can't replicate through guessing or, or, or gambling. I really think that was the catalyst. And the feedback that I got from the first service after, you know, after combat, uh, they, you know, they're the ones who confirmed that in my mind. I should say they're the ones who planted that seed. I, because I was a little surprised with, with 
the aggressiveness from the lowest ranking young sergeant, you know, through us. Um, and it was just relentless. Uh, but to a man, they believed that they understood their weapon systems better than the enemy did. And they were convinced that if there was a fight, that we were going to win because of that. Mm-hmm. So compare that to your brigade command experience uh, several years later uh, in Afghanistan. Um, what what was what was different? Uh, what did you have to adjust in your leadership style, and uh, you know, and how did your battalion command deployment to Afghanistan prepare you for that? Yeah, so when I was a battalion commander, I had you know five awesome company commanders, and they really were all five of them have become colonels. Four of the five have become brigade commanders. Uh, they're they're stunning. They're they're tremendous. I'm the first to acknowledge that I got a great uh, hand uh, of folks that were given to me. Oh, by the way, 17, uh, 15 of the 17 platoon sergeants are sergeants majors today. And you have that kind of you know you have that kind of arrangement. Uh, you're gonna you know your chances are to be pretty successful. Uh, but even having said that, captains don't have the experience of battalion commanders. So in terms of the leadership. I had to realize that, you know, I had six, in this case, in combat, I had eight battalions that were assigned to me. I had eight centrally selected battalion commanders and battalion command sergeant majors, all with 18 to 22 years of experience, all of which uh, were very, very competent. So I, I, I realized after the first month or two in brigade command that I couldn't have the same personal tempo of going out and visited training because I remember the first two months I, I was everywhere. I went to every training event. I went to every leader development session. I just, because that's what I thought I was doing until, you know, one of my sergeant major came to me and said, hey, sir, it's awesome that you're doing this. But remember, they're, they're battalion commanders and command sergeant majors too. You got to give them a little freedom. And I wasn't micromanaging. I just attended and observed. But even that is disruptive. So I had to adjust my style. And then I, I refocused my leader training to where I was going to make my influence at that point was going to be on the company commanders and first sons. And so what I did is I took those same three principles. I adjusted the training a little bit to apply it to the level that I was focusing on. But it was still rehearsals. It was still a leader development program. And it was still um, 385, uh, because there's different roles and responsibilities you have as you moved it up. And so that's how I was going to make my influence and impact. So they understood how I was thinking. So that company commander could truly think two levels up because I, I mean, I focused on the company commander and company first sergeant, uh, even in combat. We did leader development training in combat during downtime. Uh, and, you know, I synchronized it. Again, it wasn't just leader development training. It was associated with the mission profile that I was going to be giving that battalion or had given that battalion. And so we just resynchronized what we were doing. I mean, we did training events in Afghanistan as we were getting ready to go do mission uh, profiles. And so we built that all around mission rehearsals. Um, we, uh, I mean, it, so the, I had to adjust the direct leadership style and come off that a little bit. I refocused the company commanders and first starts. I had to tweak the leader training program so it synchronized with what they were doing in the environment that they were in. Um, and then what I wanted to always inculcate with everybody is don't think you got it. Constantly lean on others to help you. And so what I did in brigade command in combat is I had JRTC come out. 
And while we were in combat, I had the right seat write us and give us another OCD briefing, just like we did during the CTC. We got extended from 12 months to 15 months uh, at about the three-month mark. And at about the six-month mark, I sensed that we were getting sloppy. Uh, and it was not just sensing it. You know, between me and my Sergeant Major, Sergeant Major Richard Flowers, awesome man, we were constantly out there in the fight, and we both came to this conclusion that we were getting, we were getting sloppy. And so I called JRTC. I asked them if they'd be interested in doing this. Uh, I got obviously approval from my division commander, then Major General Dave Rodriguez. Uh, and I was cautioned against doing this, by the way, from other folks, you know, who were trying to help me say, hey, man, you don't want to expose yourself like that. To me, that's nuts. I wanted to have JRTC come out and OC us in combat and really take all of those lessons learned at JRTC really take all those lessons learned and all the experience that these OCs had to give us feedback. And so they went on missions with us. They participated in planning with us. We had them out there for about, I guess, two or two and a half weeks. And it was, it absolutely was a catalyst to reinvigorate our discipline and our attention to detail from targeting to execution. It was, that was, you know, that was something that I, I'm, I'm personally convinced also helped. And it's also where I can influence the fight at. You know, I could I go down there and, you know, be a platoon maybe share, but that's not helping anybody. Uh, but where I could influence is A, focus on my training audience, and then B, bringing in resources that's going to make us all better. So that those are probably the three things that I did differently in Brigade Command uh, from Battalion Command. Yes, sir. That's, that's fantastic. I think I think folks can really benefit from that idea. Um, and I'm sure the formation did too, having a second set of eyes. Um, yeah, it is easy to get com- that complacent. It's easy to get comfortable with your surroundings, comfortable with your capability when, um, you know, when you're sometimes it was a static environment over there. I mean, you're lot, lots of patrols and lots of engagements, but, you know, you spend spend an entire year on, in one location and that uh, gets familiar. Uh, but that's, that's outstanding. Can, can you describe your toughest day in combat over the course of your career? It's probably when uh, our uh, our artillery battalion, led by then Lieutenant Colonel Scotty Custer, Great American, uh, he had a uh, combined task force um, at, at his level, and he was responsible for the Kelsey province. Uh, and this is when we had made the collective decision, we the leadership, uh, that we were going to partner and embed with the ANA. And so there's a lot of risk associated with that. And at one of these outposts, we had uh, an ANA soldier who really wasn't an ANA soldier uh, who got inside the wire and then blew up the, um, uh, the, the gate and we had some folks injured uh, and it was, it was tough uh, because it was tough not only that we had folks injured which sucks uh, and it was tough because uh, it gives the enemy this perception of a, some level of uh, victory. Uh, but it was tough because the whole concept of rebetting with the ANA was built around trust. And, you know, we're not asking our soldiers to do easy stuff. We're not. Because if we were, soldiers wouldn't be doing it. Uh, and so having to rebuild and reestablish that trust, recognizing that if we didn't have that trust, giving the ANA strong enough to be able to defend itself would never occur. So this was the seed that was planted to where we are today 
that enables the ANA to take the fight to ISIS and, and, and in, the, in the difficult and the challenges that they have. It had to start somewhere, and that's where it started. And the vision of where we're at today is what General Rodriguez and I both had to be able to get to. And we were concerned, I was concerned, that we wouldn't be able to get there because of this kind of incident. And so that's, uh, that, that, was, that was a tough day at every level, from soldier impact to mission risk. Um, so that I would put that right up there with a couple others. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So let me shift gears then, sir, and ask you about leadership in junior junior NCOs. But you mentioned you know lieutenants and captains who who you you know focused on over the course of your career. What what do you look for in those young leaders, say new lieutenants, platoon leaders, who are just figuring it out? What, what qualities do you look for to indicate potential for say a successful company command or even battalion command later on? Intellectually curious. The kids that come out there and think they got it, they're, they're going to hurt somebody. And, I, you know, we got, we got to break that quick. Otherwise, uh, they're going to take that with them for years to come. And if you're not intellectually curious, if you think you have it, if you think you're not going to learn from your sergeants, if you're your peers, everybody always learns from the boss. But that's, you know, that's butt snorting. That doesn't mean anything. If you're learning from your boss, learning from your peers, then learning from your subordinates, and you're doing your own personal approach to preparation, that's, that's what I'm looking for in a kid. No, nowhere in there did I say the strongest, the fastest, the most effective. Uh, because that's, that may not be the result of those lifelong skills that we need for leaders to be able to demonstrate. And then the second quality is he's got to love his soldiers. And I don't mean love nice. I mean, he's got to love his soldiers that he's going to work their ass off in the same manner. He's going to put them in a position to do everything that they can do uh, for their personal desires. So uh, if I see those two qualities in a young leader, then I know we're, I've got someone that, you know, is going to, is long for this army. If you don't see those qualities, that doesn't mean they're not long for this army. They're just not long for me because <laughs> I'm, I'm just not that interested in, your talent alone. I mean, you look at the NBA. There are some players in the NBA that are so stinking talented, better than many others who aren't as talented. But yet, you know, it's the guys like Buck Williams that play for 20 years in the NBA because they train and they work their ass off the entire time. Well, it's the same in the military. Who's going to work their ass off? Who's going to, to constantly try to grow? Who's going to take care of their subordinates, both you know, tough love and love uh, and help them, you know, be all they can be and get to the opportunities that they're trying to get to. That's what I look for. So imagine someone doesn't have one or both of those qualities, you know, as a young leader, can you, can you teach it? I mean, how do you teach intellectual curiosity? How do you teach, you know, loving the soldiers? Sure. I mean, you know, through feedback. I mean, I I know at the battalion level, there isn't a platoon leader who did, who couldn't say I didn't give feedback. They may not like the feedback, but it's my responsibility. That's my training audience. And so it's a two-way street. I can't expect folks who are demonstrating a behavior to change that behavior if I'm not taking an active role. The active role that you can take is whenever they're screwed up. That's not the time you only engage them. And it's also not the time when they do something really good you only engage them. It's all that in-between time that you have to engage them. I remember being told that at the battalion level, you know, 
because the last time that you spent with the troops on a daily basis and you'd only spend 60% of your time with the troops. Well, I didn't comply with that. I spent about 80 or 90 with the my training audience, and then I left the other 10 to 20 of the staff. The staff I was relentlessly hard on because I needed to protect that time I had with my training audience. And so you felt that. You were at one end of the platoon and then you came up to be my S1. It was a completely different relationship uh, because I don't have, I was not going to be the admin guy, uh, but I wanted my XO to work with the staff to be able to handle that. And it's not because I was focused on everything in the training environment. That's not it either. I was focused on maximizing my time with the training audience that I was assigned. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Let me ask you specifically about that because I think it's something that the battalion commanders and company commanders face is that the, the two levels down approach that that we have in the army, that where battalion commanders you know train and develop those young lieutenant platoon leaders, uh, it, it, is there a risk that you kind of skip the company commanders because yeah they're the responsibility of the brigade commander, but you know sometimes I've I've heard company commanders get feedback that they feel a little bit a little bit left out because the battalion commanders is focused so much on the lieutenants. Did you find that or, or how, how did you split your time there? No, I was fortunate. My brigade commander, then Colonel Jim Huggins, now Lieutenant General, retired Jim Huggins. Uh, he was as relentless on his training audience as I was focusing on mine. And we were nested. Uh, so after I built my leader training program, I went to him, I laid it out for him. Uh, if I had to do this over again, I would have recommended we do a leader training session at the brigade and battalion command level and built a comprehensive one that was consistent across all the battalions. But that, I wasn't smart enough to do that then. I did do that as a brigade commander. Uh, but he and I were nested linked. So for me, that was not a problem. Having said that, though, my company commanders at the time, I think, would tell you that they also felt they were my training audience because they were my trainers for the leader development program, and they would then brief me. I didn't have the three of the XO intercede on the back briefs for what we were going to do for the next leader training session. That was my lane, my responsibility. I was the senior trainer. And so I had the company commanders and first sergeants brief me what their lieutenants and platoon sergeants and squad leaders were going to do for the next leader development program. Now, it was already approved upon the task, but in terms of the back brief and the IPRs, that was done to me. And so they were getting that touch every day. Plus, they were part of all the AERs. They were part of all the training resources that we did. Uh, and so... You know, one of the things that I think that we've gotten away from, at least by 2014, I don't know if we picked it back up, is complying with our old training strategies at the battalion and company level, uh, this integrated effort to put training together. And the war got in the way of that, of letting that go, which we should have never let it go. So 25-100 and 25-101 were probably the two best training manuals uh, during my my career, the brigade level and below, that I constantly used uh, to put together, work, orchestrate, and synchronize training. Okay. Okay. Um, now that you mentioned the, the feedback there, I do remember so as lieutenants, and you did this, I think, pretty early on in your tenure as battalion commander, uh, you had the lieutenants survey each other, like do peers in ranger school, right. um, kind of similar concept there. What what was your in intent behind that, and, and what did it tell you about uh, those that you senior rated? So it, it only works if the folks know that it's going to be used in a positive manner. That's number one. 
it doesn't work if people think this is used to, as an I gotcha. And it wasn't just the lieutenants, it was every officer went through this to include me. And so what I did was uh, another tool from Frank Kearney. Now, uh, they were, he was, when he was in the Ranger Regiment, they had all these resources and they were able to do 360, peers, 360 assessments. And that's your subordinates, your peers, and your superiors being able to provide you feedback and, and things for you to continue to do and things for you to continue to work on. And so we did that in a unit that he had with us, but we had to do it on the cheap. So we used the chaplain when we were in Italy, and the feedback was phenomenal. I mean, I got told three things. I, well, I got told a bunch of things I needed to improve, some things I needed to sustain that I had not gotten in some cases or I had gotten before. It was just reinforced when you get this kind of comprehensive feedback. And the way Colonel Kearney used it was it didn't go into your OER. It didn't even go into his consideration of you. Matter of fact, he never even looked at these dang cards. Uh, he looked, I mean, he wanted you to use it, but what he did was he took his card and he shared it with everyone on things that we wanted him to improve on and, and sustain. And so when I got to the unit, I, did, I tried to do something similar. Uh, I think, I don't know if I used the chaplain or if I used somebody else. I, whoever I used, uh, I had you guys uh, all do an assessment of each other, of the captains, of the field grades, of the battalion commander. I had the captains do the lieutenants and the field grades. And then I had the field grades do the captains and me, and I, I had everybody do me. Uh, but I, I tried to keep it one up, one down kind of arrangement. And I didn't do anybody, obviously, because that wasn't the purpose of it. And then, so I brought everybody in. Uh, I issued the cards out. I made everybody you know, give me your top, uh, I don't know if I said five officers, your bottom five officers. And I didn't categorize as bottom. I said the, the ones who need the least improved, the ones who need the most improved. And then on everybody's card, list the five or six things that you want them to improve on, improve on the five or six things that you want them to sustain. Uh, and the one coaching point I had is if you want your card to count, don't give me bullshit. Don't get personal. Don't do any of that kind of stuff because that's not helpful. This, and the purpose of this was to provide feedback to the leader so they could decide what they were going to improve upon. And invariably, that officer took the in input and tried to fix it. Now, in my case, I got, I don't know, six or seven things to improve, and six or maybe five or six things to sustain. And so I brought everybody in after we did this assessment, because I never saw the cards. The cards were given only back to the individuals that were assessed, and they were summarized. So it's not the actual card. Uh, the chaplain or whomever I had to do this summarized each officer and their strengths and weaknesses, and that was given to that officer. So the only person that knew everything was the chaplain. And again, I, I don't remember if it was the chaplain or somebody else. But I just yes, sir. Remember I remember you, uh, you, you, you briefed, or I, it was part of counseling, I think, is you briefed me personally about what that feedback was and what the peers had said and, and how they ranked. And that was powerful, you know, to, uh, to, to yeah. hear that. So. When I, when I sat down with, uh, well, truthfully, Drew, the way I got that is, I got that from you guys. I never saw the summary counseling. I got it from you guys being so open about sharing what it was, which told me that this was really working. But I remember I brought everybody in, so I read my card. 
here's the things you want me to improve. You guys came down on five or six things. Well, I couldn't improve those five or six things at once. So I told you guys, here are the three things I'm going to focus on, and here are the three things that'll that'll be out there. If I get to the first three, then I'll get to the next three. And then I didn't mean, I didn't focus on staying. And I said, so this is going to help me get better. This is the purpose of what we're doing. It doesn't go into my report card. It doesn't go into your report card. Um, and so that was that was the whole goal of this thing. Yes, sir. So so how about right now in your in your current position? Uh, you know, you've transitioned to you know present CEO of Network Designs. Uh, so is that kind of feedback? Is that kind of leader development approach something that that you apply today? Is it would be received in the same way? No, you got to be real careful out here. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, that's why, look, I love uh, everything I've done. I, I love what I'm doing. I'm working with a bunch of great people. But, uh, you know, when there's something unique about the military that is not replicated anywhere else that I've been. I'm sure maybe first responders, the police force, the firefighters, those kind of guys and gals, they, they probably experienced something similar. But when you're hanging out with a bunch of heroes who every day are willing to take the enemy's life, on behalf of their nation and not give their own, which is what I'm a big fan of. Uh, although prepared to if, if you have to. Um, there's just a unique quality when you're hanging out with folks like that who are already trying to contribute something bigger than themselves. And now the civilian world, it's not necessarily that way. And it's not necessarily something you can build. You can coach, you can teach, you can mentor, you can develop, you can invest in folks. And we're trying to do that, uh, but you don't have the same level of unity uh, that you would have, you know, in the military. And it's no, I don't, I think that's the same for all businesses, because at the end of the day, there are some split loyalties that you have in the civilian world that you don't have in the, in the military. Uh-huh, sure. So over the course of your career, sir, you've, you mentioned uh, General Kearney um, and, and maybe a couple others. How important was mentorship to your development? Oh, it's, it's all of it. I mean, I, so the major was such a formative time for me when I was a major. One of the best mentors I had was then Master Sergeant Rich, Rich, Richard Flowers. I was the Brigade S3 uh, in Italy. Uh, I, I was I was a hard charger. I worked my ass off. There was, and I knew that. Uh, but I was so imbalanced, it was ridiculous. Uh, and so Sergeant, then Master Sergeant Flowers comes in, he's working with me for three, I mean, I put him to work right away, made him part of the team, gave him significant responsibility. He's just a tremendous soldier, smart guy, good guy. And he came to me at about day four, day five, and he really humbled me and in, that, in, a, in, a, in a different way. He said, you know, I've been working with you for three or four days now. You've worked with me like a dog. You haven't asked me about my family. You haven't asked me about my kids. You haven't asked me if I'm settled. You really haven't taken a real interest in me. You've only taken a real interest in what I can do. And that was a body blow to me because I've always kind of prided myself of always being focused on the troops. But I'd gotten so lost and working so hard and grinding out the mission that I, you know, I get mission first, men second from, you know, the, the, the the leadership perspective and how you make decisions. But I, I had lost that balance significantly. And he didn't miss a day to provide me coaching for the remaining six months that we were together at that point, which is why I picked him as my brigade sergeant major when I was getting ready to go to combat. 
because I, he has made as much of an impact on me as Frank Kearney did on me. And so, and by the way, both of those two guys have a relationship, which isn't a surprise. Because uh, when he was a private, he was Colonel Kearney's guide on bearer when Colonel Kearney was Captain Kearney in the Ranger Regiment. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, Sergeant Major Richard Flowers is one of the most impactful mentors I've had. But it's without mentorship, you're, you know, look, you can look at the brigades that don't have division structures on top of them, and you can see the amount of challenges that those brigade leaders have in being properly developed. Everybody needs to be mentored. And if you don't think you need to be mentored, then I'm telling you, you need to get out of the Army because you're no longer intellectually curious, because you're so arrogant at that point that those words actually exit your mouth that you're, you're not, you're, you're at risk to bringing kids home. And so I, my, my alarm bells go off. I, mentorship is everything. Yes, sir. What other resources, what, what have you used over the course of your career uh, besides mentorship and influence from your, um, you know, from your bosses and folks that impact you there? What, what else do you refer to? You know, uh, operationalizing the mentorship. I mean, if you're going to do nothing, what the mentorship is not, hey, here's how we're going to make you a colonel or a general. Mentorship is helping you grow to become better. And so operationalizing that mentorship is where, is what I spent all of my, my time doing. The mentorship is the necessary input, but it's what you do with that that determines if you're going to grow and get better and be effective for the formation. So there's nothing outside of that input other than the execution of that input and operationalizing it, and then the use of AARs to constantly review to try to get better. That's, I, I, there is, I really have limited, I won't say limited, but that's what I've focused the development on in the venue that I've used. Uh, well, if you don't mind, I'd like to just ask you a, a, kind of a question about balancing the Army and the family, because you mentioned, you know, getting getting a, a reality check there uh, from from Star Major Flowers. But, you know, throughout your career, when the sacrifices of the Army uh, start to impact uh, your you know, the family and, and those start those things start to come into into contact, how have you managed that? And was there ever a time where you thought, well, maybe maybe this is just going to be too rough? Uh, maybe I should consider something else because a lot of folks, it happens for a lot of folks. So did it ever happen for you? Yeah. And I would say that there's no doubt in my mind that I, I didn't manage that. I did. Um, I'm also, you know, this isn't going to be popular, but I don't think you can manage it. If you're really going to focus on bringing the soldiers, giving them the best opportunity to come home from a combat operation, you know, you're getting, I don't care what level you're at, whether you're a platoon leader, company commander, battalion commander, or brigade commander, you're getting anywhere from 30 to 3,000 people put underneath your command from other moms and dads that are trusting you to put the right architecture in place that gives their son or daughter the best chance to come home from a high threat environment, which combat is. Uh, so I don't know how you balance that with your personal time if you're going to achieve that mission and that, that end state. And so I, I am sorry that I didn't balance. I got to tell you, I'm not sure I'd do a whole lot different um, because of the success we had on the mission side as well as bringing soldiers home. So I, you know, I, I, I don't have a, 
a great textbook answers. I mean, I've heard a lot of these great leaders, you know, say stuff like, well, you balance it, you lead by six, all of, that's all bullshit. You do that, you're going to leave people on the battlefield. I mean, it's it's not a it's not conducive. And, I, and you know, the, the concern I have in today's army is this overrepresentation of the gentle glove. This overrepresentation that somehow combat is this precise environment and condition set where you don't need to be steely-eyed and tough and etc. I mean, this is. I, I am concerned that we have we are losing our balance with what we need to produce to be able to win our nation's wars. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. What should we change right now? Then, say at the at the platoon and company level, what 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 should young young leaders go out and and change right now to get prepared for that? We, we're not training. We're not training the way we need to be training. I mean, you go to Fort Bragg today, and you see all these constraints. Put applying three eighty five sixty three. You cannot apply. DAPM 385-63, which title is something about training ranges and life fires. You cannot apply that on Fort Bragg today. We applied it routinely. You cannot apply that today. And if you can't apply that on Fort Bragg, you're not going to apply that anywhere. So I, I think we need to get back to using the regulations and the PAMs that have been developed over time that work. Yes, there is risk in training. That's why we do risk mitigation, not risk elimination. Risk elimination teaches wrong habits, and it's not how you're going to fight. Uh, and so uh, if, I wouldn't give a whole laundry list, but I would absolutely put that right up there as number one. The other thing that I would highlight is the empowerment of NCOs. I'm not sure we're still there. I know the one, you know, and look, I'm not uh, – 80 seconds is better than everybody else kind of person. I'm not, not, I kind of believe that, but I don't really believe that. I'm just proud of the 80 seconds. What I am most proud of is the non-commissioned officers in the 80 seconds because they actually are empowered or were empowered. Uh, and it's demonstrated on the drop zone. Who's in charge? No officers in charge. It's a bunch of sergeants who are making that happen. We have got to continue to invest in and empower our non-commissioned officers because that is our secret sauce, which makes us different than any and every other formation in the world today. We can make decisions at the lowest level because our sergeants are empowered. Uh, we have got to ensure that we continue to invest in that, and that remains a true statement. Mm-hmm. That's great, sir. Well, let me, uh, let me ask you one more question, if you don't mind. You know, over the over the years. And as the saying goes, you can't give yourself a nickname, but, you know, others have to do it for you. So, you know, you've you know, been affectionately nicknamed coach uh, by troops, by, you know, officers and NCOs have served under you. Why do you think that is? And what type of connection, you know, causes a, a follower to look look at you besides the commanders, but as someone who really develops and cares about them and trains them like a coach would? Yeah, I I got that assignment when I was a company commander uh, at JRTC, and all the OCs were had their little checklist out, and so they were grilling me because I didn't write an op order with the craft or whatever. But we did rehearsals, and we did rehearsals over and over and over again. Matter of fact, I don't think I wrote an op order other than we did a matrix for every operation, and then we synchronized our fires. But uh, and so I got it actually from an OC. 
uh, and he told it to my RTO, my first sergeant, and then my first sergeant kind of made it run after that. First sergeant, Mark Matney, one of the most influential people in life. Another great mentor who I screwed something up, and he defended me and protected me in front of the formation, and he came to my house and said, don't you ever do that again. I just love that guy. But we're so that's where I think it it really got uh, you know cemented in. But it just um, you know focusing on the basics. Number two is they got to believe you, uh, and it's not just the coach, they any leader. They have, the troops have to believe you. If you're phony, they're going to know it. I wasn't phony about we're going to be able to do the missions that were assigned, and we're going to myopically focus on the missions that were assigned. So in our metal training, uh, our metal test that we had. Our company leader development program was all focused around the, the mission essential task list that we had as a company commander and nothing else, nothing else. There was no assignment of Rommel or, you know, <laughs> Sun Tzu or any of that other stuff. It was the leader development program was built around every soldier being able to do their job and the job above them, and it started then. And so I, I just think it's the trust that they had that I believed in what I was trying to do and that they believed that, that what I was trying to do, and that, that was a common belief, and it never wavered. You know, you go into some formations, you hear folks say, here are my five priorities, and you never see them get after it. Uh, well, I had three priorities, and that's all I got after. And so there was the expectation, the predictability was there for the troops, and they knew what I was going to focus on. So it, I'm sure some of that was comical to them, but all of it was consistent and, and predictable, and I know that they appreciated that at every level. Yes, sir. You know, I got to just thank you personally for investing the time uh, in junior leaders across the Army because it's made an impact uh, as, as evidenced uh, by the success of those uh, that you've worked with and led and fought with. So, uh, you know, we appreciate you for that, sir. Uh, but uh, I do want to thank you uh, for taking the time today to chat with us and share your lessons because uh, I think it's important for uh, today's soldier and leader to hear. Yeah, no, I appreciate this, Drew. And I do. I, look, I think it's great what you're doing. Uh I know you got a lot of people helping you, and that's all awesome. But you know, someone's got to get you know to figure out a venue to do this lessons learned and to help people get better and all that stuff. I just think this is one of those things that are necessary, but a lot of folks aren't jumping into it. And I'm glad you are because it, it is going to have an impact. So thanks. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, thank you so much, sir. It, it was great chatting with you. All right, buddy. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Brigadier General Marty Schweitzer. I know I did. There's something about that direct leadership style, that no frills, no pulled punches, engagement, and honest feedback and candor that really resonates. I think a lot of people look up to that uh, and aspire to be that. So I just appreciate everything he's done for me personally and uh, for spending the time to come on the podcast here. I really hope it was beneficial for everyone listening, and uh, we thank him for it. All right, the next guest on the Military Leader Podcast is Colonel Eric Lopez. Colonel Lopez is a 1996 graduate from West Point, an infantry officer, and has done just about everything infantry you can think of. He's been in the 101st Airborne, the 75th Ranger Regiment, the 10th Mountain Division, 2nd Infantry Division, 1st Infantry Division. He has been to Iraq and Afghanistan seven times and has led at the company and battalion level in Afghanistan and worked as a battalion and brigade operations officer in Iraq. He is just finishing up the War College and is taking 3rd Recruiting Brigade this summer. He's got a unique 
engaging, positive leadership style that really comes out in the interview. And there'll be tons of lessons for you. Definitely don't want to miss it. Um, one thing he um, he's done recently is created Lopez on Leadership. It's a YouTube and Facebook page where he shares lessons from his career and then interviews other leaders uh, who also share their insights. So it's a great resource, Lopez on Leadership. Be sure to search for it on YouTube and Facebook. And here is a little sneak peek at next week's conversation with Colonel Eric Lopez. The younger generations are are influenced by what they get on their phone. So let's say the average soldier looks at their phone 100 times a day, which is probably low. Every time they're looking at their phone, whether it's Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram, you know, Facebook, whatever, they are being influenced by someone. You know, Kylie Jenner has over 100 million followers, right? So she is influencing people, hundreds of millions of people every day. Where are our army leaders in that equation? So if your soldier is looking at his phone or her phone 100 times a day, how many times are you, as a battalion commander, company commander, PL, squad leader, whatever, how many times are you in that equation of of influencing them? Um, We've got to figure that out. If we're sending out our guidance on an email with an attachment, we're irrelevant to this generation. The days of the colonel tells the lieutenant colonel, lieutenant colonel tells the major, major tells the the captain, all the way down. If we're doing that, we are irrelevant. We are not communicating. We have to go from the colonel to every single person in the organization. And that's what social media and digital tools allow us to do. That is going to be a fantastic episode next week with Colonel Eric Lopez. You don't want to miss it. Thank you so much for plugging in into the military leader and making it part of your professional development journey. I encourage you to share this resource with your team, with your friends, your colleagues, your network, and on social media. And if you find something that strikes you and provides insight for you, then I encourage you to share that and bring folks into the community to enhance the conversation on leadership. And if you want to help fund the military leader, there is a link to Amazon that is on the web page there on the right-hand side. Just click there when you're ready to make an Amazon purchase, and it'll a small donation will go to the military leader. It helped me keep this going here. I appreciate it. Music from this episode was composed by Ilya Rayovsky. Reminder that the views expressed here do not represent the U.S. government in any way. Thanks for listening, and lead well. Well.